Thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron and Emily. Good to be here with all of y'all. Now, I don't know, I guess some of you probably know this, but I've been known to play a video game or two in my day. In fact, when I was a kid, I openly wept when my friend's mom called me a video game vegetable. That's not a nice thing to call a five-year-old. Who calls somebody that? But uh, yeah, I have played my fair share of video games in my life. And uh, one of them, which I'm sure you don't care, but I'm going to tell you anyways, Super Smash Brothers came out in 1999, and uh, I've been playing this, this series of games for 22 years. And uh, I don't mean to brag, but at a certain point in time, I was in the top 3% of players who used the character uh, Snake. And uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Just trying. It's, it's hard to be humble when you're that good at something like this. But uh, I, I play this game a lot, even though despite the fact that when I'm playing this, I yell at the TV, and now when the dog sees me holding a remote control, he runs away from me. Um, I have, uh, and here's the thing, I think because I became so good at this game, well, I mean, clearly, this is the reason that women can't keep their hands off of me. And you're, you're probably thinking to yourself, Gabe, if you're so good at Smash Brothers, why aren't you married? And I completely understand why you would think that, but um, the, the answer is, I don't got time for ladies because I'm playing Smash Brothers. So, um, so yeah, I do, I do play some Smash Brothers, and here's the thing that might be surprising to you. Uh, eSports is actually a thing. It's a real category, eSports, electronic sports, um, uh, professional video game competitions. In fact, with Smash Brothers, you might not believe this, but there are actually varsity high school Smash Brothers teams now. In, in Ohio, I saw there was 112 high schools with Smash Brothers varsity teams. And uh, people actually make money doing this. The highest um, prize ever won at the Smash Brothers tournament was $47,739.60. And don't forget the 60 cents. And, uh, but Smash Brothers, actually the prize money for Smash Brothers is relatively low considered uh, compared to some of the other prizes you can win for playing other games. Like there's this video game company called Valve that puts on this annual competition called the International. And uh, people competed in a game called Dota 2. The, so the, in 2019, the team that won, won the greatest amount of money ever given away for a video game tournament. Uh, and that was $15.6 million that team won. And uh, at that event, the total amount of prize money given away to all the different 18 teams that plays was $34 million for 18 different teams. Now... Some of you are probably thinking, who cares? Why, why would anyone pay someone money to play a video game? Why, why would somebody um, spend their life doing something like that? Why do people care so much about somebody moving around pixels on a television screen? And to be honest with you, the older I get and the more time that I spend playing video games, the less I enjoy them because that's the type of thinking that's going through my head. Like, what does this even matter? Like, at the end of this, who cares that I'm doing this? At the end of my life, does it really matter whether or not I was in the top 3%? Who really cares? What difference does it make? But the truth is, a lot of the things that we spent, that we that people give the most attention to, that people pay the most attention to, that people pay the most money to, that gets the most glory, are things that at the end of life really don't matter that much. At the end of someone's life, does it really matter how many likes they got on the picture of their lunch? On the, at the end of their life, does it really matter how many balls somebody put through a hoop? At the end of someone's life, does it really matter 
what they looked like when they were 25 years old. And here's an even kind of scarier question to ask. Does it, how much do those things matter after your life is over? Now, um, some people, and there's been a lot of research done on this, have claimed to have died and, and uh, left their body and experienced something in the next life and then come back to talk about it. They're called near-death experiences, or some people call them NDEs. Now, if you're not a, a Christian or religious person and you're here, we're so glad that you're here. We want you to be here. We want you to benefit from being here. You can uh, belong uh, before you believe, and um, you can bring your brain to church. You can ask questions. That's awesome. And I understand that the idea of an afterlife might sound kind of absurd or like a failed fairy tale or fantasy to you. That's totally okay. We're glad that you're here. But the truth is, there's actually been a lot of research on these sorts of things um, by... Uh, in a scientific sort of manner. So there's a book called uh, The Science, The Science of Near-Death Experiences that came out in 2017. It was released by, it was published by University of Missouri Press. Uh, so a secular, a secular uh, publisher released this. And all of the cases of NDEs that it talks about in it were originally published in, um, in scientific journals. And in this book, it says that 20 million Americans have reported near-death experiences or near-death phenomena, and 30 million if you include Europe. So this isn't just some random thing. This isn't something that's just believed by crazy people. This is stuff that's being discussed in scientific journals. Now, one of the most, and I've read a lot of these, I've listened to a lot of these uh, near-death experience and people recounting these. One of the most common things uh, in them and this isn't just me saying this from my observation, but other people who have studied them very closely. One of the most common things that happens in these near-death experiences is a life review where people see how they lived their life. And it can occur in lots of different ways. Some people say it's like watching a movie. Some people say it's like watching a PowerPoint presentation. Some people say it's like an instantaneous flash where they were able to comprehend everything they did at at uh, the same time. Some people say they can see the ripple effect of all uh, the actions that they made. Some people say they're able to experience how what they did affected people in ways they didn't know affected them, or they can feel what they made other people feel, whether for better or for worse. And in a book called Imagine Heaven by John Burke, uh, he talks a lot about NDEs and says, do these line up with what the Bible has to say? And um, one of the NDEs is, uh, he shares was from a guy named Georgie Ritchie, and this was a, a soldier. And I want to actually share what Georgie has written about um, his experience with a life review in a near-death experience. So he, he wrote this, uh, What emanated from this presence, and the presence he reveals earlier on, he refers to it as Jesus Christ, was the, the, what emanated from this presence, get Smash Brothers out there, geez, that's not what we're here for, okay, um, what emanated uh, from this presence was unconditional love, an astonishing love, a love beyond my wildest imagining. The, this love knew every unlovable thing about me. The quarrels with my stepmother, my explosive temper, the sex thoughts I could never control, every mean, selfish thought and action since the day I was born, and it accepted and loved me just the same. I saw, myself, I saw myself turning away from my stepmother, bent over to kiss me goodnight. Saw the very thought itself, I'm not going to love this woman. My mother died. If I love 
her, my stepmother, she'll leave me too. I watched myself at age 10 standing at the same dining room window while dad went to the hospital to bring home mother and our new brother Henry. And I saw myself deciding before I ever saw him, I was not going to like this newcomer. Every detail of 20 years of living was there to be looked at. The good, the bad, the high points, the run of the mill, and with this all-inclusive view came a question. It was implicit in every scene, and like the scenes themselves seemed to proceed from the living light beside me. What did you do with your life? Raymond Moody, who is one of the first people to really start spending a lot of time researching and gathering um, uh, documentation of near-death experiences, actually coined the term near-death experience, says this question is present in many accounts of life reviews um, that people experience. What did you do with your life? And what a powerful question that is for us to think about. And I want to think about that together today. Now, Gary Habermas, who I mentioned a few weeks ago when I was talking about evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, this guy has spent his whole, a huge portion of his life studying evidence for the resurrection, and um, he's even writing a, a book right now that's slated to be 5,000 pages long about um, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, of course, because he's studying this, um, life after death and coming back to life, he's read a lot of near-death experiences, and he makes a really important point that I want to make as well, and that's this, that we can't verify things like life reviews and and what people experience, if they actually went to heaven, if they actually went to hell, what they, we, we can't verify things, we can't go and see and explore ourselves. Um, but, he says, there are many NDE experience, uh, NDEs where people experience stuff on this earth that have been uh, validated. So people sometimes when they're, you know, most of the documented cases happen in a hospital because that's where you can see when somebody's, uh, Flatlined, you know, when they have no brainwave or heart activity. Um, uh, so he, he, there are many cases that he, he's collected about 300 where people have evidential cases where they're able to see something that happened in another room and it was verified later. Or they're able to hear something that somebody else in a different room was saying. Or they're able to recount something that was going on uh, during the medical procedure. How the doctor was doing the surgery on them. Even in, in one case, uh, a woman was able to leave her body and see a serial number that was like 12 digits long on top of a medical device. And she was able to, uh, that you wouldn't be able to see uh, unless you could get above it, which was way high up. And when she came back, she, she told someone there what she had seen. And when they were later moving that medical device out of the room, they were able to look on top of it and saw that she actually had it exactly right. So um, what we can learn from NDEs is that there's reason to believe there is life after death. And uh, materialism, there's less reason to believe that materialism is true, meaning that uh, materialism is the idea that there is no God, that all there is is this physical universe. Um, when you die, it's lights out. So um, we can learn that from NDEs. Now, even though we can't say, yes, we know that life reviews happen and Jesus will ask us this question at the end of our life, uh, what did you do with your life? It certainly goes along with what the Bible has to teach. For example, the Apostle Paul, who was a first century church planner and wrote a lot of letters to different Christian churches, and we have these letters in the New Testament, he wrote to a church in Corinth and said this. He said, by the grace God has given me, 
I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Real humble, Paul. And someone else is building on it. Uh, but he's referring to each of us, um, or each Christian. But each one should build with care, for one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid. One, uh, I should, it should say, for one can't lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, um, he's comparing uh, a, 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 a Christian's life to building a house or a structure of some sort. And he says, the, the foundation there is your relationship with Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you say, forgive me for my sins, I'm making you, I'm putting you in charge, that's laying a foundation. And that foundation um, is a guarantee that you will spend forever in heaven with Jesus. So uh, he continues on. He says, if, uh, well, okay, so, but many people, many Christians think that, you know, that's kind of all there is to Christianity. It's just fire insurance. Um, I'm in, I'm safe. Hooray. But, but Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, meaning the day Jesus comes back and brings justice to the earth, will bring it to light. So Jesus is going to have a look at all the things that we've done. Um, it will be revealed with fire, uh, our work, our work, the things that we have done will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So, the question is not, you know, like, will you build a house with your life? The question is, what are you building your life out of? And what, these things that we're building our life up, it's our, it's our actions. Whether it's wood or hay or straw or gold or metal or whatever it is, it's our, it's our actions. What we build our life out, out of is the decisions we make when we choose, how will I spend my time? How will I spend my money? How will I treat others? Or how will I not spend my time? Where will I not spend my time? Where will I not spend my money? How will I not treat other people? And although we can't get to heaven by doing enough good things, uh, Jesus, the whole point of him coming was for him to pay the price so that we can go to heaven and be forgiven of our sins to go to heaven um, by allowing him to pay the penalty for our sin. Um, it's still true that the way Christians behave in this life will determine what happens in, to them in the next life, whether they are rewarded or whether it's like just escaping from a fire. So this idea that Jesus would review our life with us, and he might even ask us the question, what did you do with the life that I gave you? It's consistent with the Bible. Um, and this isn't the only passage in the Bible where we learn something like this. Um, Jesus himself taught, he says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? If you get everything you want, if you get all the money, if you get all the cards, if you get all the people that you want to do whatever you want them to do, and you're in charge and you have power and authority, what, why does that even matter if you forfeit your soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, is going to come in the glory of his Father, and with his angel, and he will then repay every man according to his deeds. He's going to look 
at how we lived our lives. And Jesus also said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. How do you do that? By the way you live. Uh, and a treasure in heaven that will never fail. When you care for those in need, or just when you do things that are meaningful, that are according to God's plan, that are according to his commands, there is treasure in heaven for that, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. We all know everything on this earth is temporary, but one day God will look at our deeds, perhaps with us, perhaps asking the question, what did you do with your life? And we will see what we did if it really mattered or if it did not. So, um, Jesus wants to reward you for doing what matters. And I think it's important for us, for, for all of us, to take the time to, to ask the question to ourselves, what did we do with our life? And think, if, if, if in fact Jesus does ask us the question at the end of our life, what did you do with the life that I gave you? How would we answer that question? Can you imagine Jesus praising you for how much time you spent watching the news? Can you imagine him praising you for how much time you spent on social media or how many likes you got or how much money you had or what car you drove or, um, you know, how beautiful you were, how, how much money you spent on your looks? Can you imagine Jesus praising you for how many points you scored or for how many people liked your picture? Or do you imagine Jesus praising you at the end of your life for things like how merciful you were, how forgiving you were? how much you shared his love with other people, how much you shared his story with other people, how much you loved your family, how much you cared for the weak and the hurting and those in need. Now, I'm not saying, hey, stop doing anything you enjoy and go stand in the corner and think about Jesus for 24 hours a day. That's not the point that I'm getting at here. What I want to talk about is prioritizing commitments, deciding which commitments in my life are going to be most important. And when I have to decide between two, which one am I going to say that's the one that's most important? Because at the end of my life, I want to say that's what I prioritize if Jesus asks me, what did I do with the life that I gave you? And I want to, in this, this series that we're talking about, uh, Engraved Invitation, we're talking about the importance of being a part of a body of believers who meet together regularly, weekly, and serve together and love each other and love others who come and join and worship God together and learn about God together and work to together to make an impact in this world that is hurting so much. I want to argue that when you commit to being a part of something like that, at the, end of your that at the end of your life, the things that you develop from being committed to a body of Jesus followers will be the sorts of things that you say, I'm glad I did that. You said that that mattered. When Jesus, if Jesus asks you, what did you do with the life you gave? You can say, I was a part of a church. And look at all the incredible things that came out of that. Because it's in the environment of a church that the things that will matter the most at the end of your life will develop. Uh, for example, generosity. Um, 
King uh, Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, he uh, was known far and wide for his wisdom. He said, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. These are the kind of things that you, the message that you get, that get washed over you when you commit to being part of a group of believers. We learn these sorts of things week after week. And that's why when we learned on Easter that those of you, uh, that together we were able to raise over the past five years $198,000 to go to um, fight the global water crisis, which is causing all sorts of people all sorts of suffering. But it's being together in a group of people who are organizing and equipping each other and encouraging each other to go and be a part of something like this to make a difference so that people can have relief from incredible suffering. Check out some of this information from um, Pew Research. So uh, uh, this is the people who gave to the poor in the past seven days by donating, donating time, money, or goods. Americans who uh, attend church weekly, note, note it's weekly, and pray daily, 65% of them did that while other Americans were at 41%. Um, and did volunteer work in the past uh, seven days. Americans who attend church weekly and pray daily, 45%. Other Americans, 27%. Rates of adopting children, all U.S. households, 2%. That's including practicing Christians. Um, and uh, practicing Christians, uh, 5%. And this is not to try and say, wow, Christians sure are better than everybody else. No, the point is that when you're a part of a group of believers... We're in a place where we're more motivated and inspired to do the things we know deep down really matter. That at the end of your life, you will say, I'm glad I was a part of that community because it motivated me to do things I would not have done otherwise. And probably the reason that Christians uh, care about children who don't have parents so much is because we learn from the Bible. We learn from Jesus' half-brother James who said, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their adversity and to keep oneself untainted by the world. These are the kind of messages that are so important for us to be reminded. And what, what other things are more important than receiving things like this that inspire us to help those in need? Here's another real great benefit about church. Um, I'll start off with something that doesn't sound real great and show you what's actually great about it. So there's this statistic that sort of got ingrained in the minds of Christians and, and preachers and marriage counselors uh, that the divorce rate inside, the, inside of the church is the same as the divorce rate outside of the church. Um, and Shanti Feldman, who uh, works a lot with statistics, wrote a book called The Good News About Marriage. And in it, one of the, the first things she uh, addresses is this idea that people seem to think the divorce rate in America is 50%. Um, and she says she's talked to so many people who just feel hopeless about their marriage because they think, well, you know, no matter what I do, it's 50%, so it's probably going to fail. I just, did I just burp right there? That was really weird. Hope you didn't notice that, but now you definitely did because I said it. Um, how do I reel this back in? Marriage! Maybe that's why I'm not married. Um, I do stuff like that. So... Uh, what she shows in actuality is that um, I think, I, so if you're married for the first time, you know, you're more likely to stay married than if it's the second time or the third time. Uh, you're, with the first marriage, it's only a 25% uh, 
um, divorce rate. So that's much better than, than 50%. But what she goes on to show is um, that this idea that the divorce rate inside the church is the same outside of the church is a misrepresentation of a uh, Gallup, um, some, some data put, in, put together by an organization called Gallup. And, uh, or is, uh, mm, that might be Barna, I'm sorry. I have it in my notes somewhere. But um, Barna, that's what it is, it's Barna. And, uh, and she uh, shows that, um, okay, where was I? Got mixed up with the whole Barna. The, the burp throwed me off, threw me off. Uh, I gotta get back on track here. Um, so she showed that in actuality, uh, what his statistics said was that um, people who, have, who just claim to have Christian beliefs, their divorce rate is the same as people um, who, do, who do not have Christian beliefs. So uh, she talks about uh, a guy named Dr. Brad Wilcox who studied a survey that conducted three separate waves of interviews with 13,000 people about marriage. And... Um, what he found is, check this, this data out, reduction in divorce for active churchgoers. So there's the actual reduction in divorce rate for overall average for active churchgoers, meaning people who go to church several times a month. Uh, 50% for mainline Protestant, 54%. Active conservative Protestant, 44%. Active Catholic, 50%. Now, um, Brian, Dr. Wilcox found that um, this is what she writes. Dr. Wilcox found that most of the reduction in divorce among churchgoers can be conclusively tied to the impact of church attendance itself and not some of the other factors that came along with it. For example, churchgoers tend to be more educated and well-off, but since those factors also lower the risk of divorce, Dr. Wilcox wanted to find whether it was church attendance or those socioeconomic factors that were more important. He discovered that even after controlling for many other factors, such as income, age, gender, race, ethnicity, education, and geographic region, the matter of church attendance trumped it all. So you see, if you factor in all those other things, you still are 35% less likely to get divorced um, if you attend church several times a month. It's probably because at church, we are encouraged to love People are encouraged to love their spouses and just to love anyone. Um, for example, the Apostle Paul wrote in the church in Ephesians, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, isn't that what you want in a spouse? Isn't that what a spouse wants in you? And where, where else do you get these messages repeatedly? Where else are you inspired by other people to care for the things that really, really matter at the end of this life? That you look back and say, I'm glad that I did that. Where else can you have those things plus this message that there is meaning and purpose in life because you were created by a God who wants you to exist and wants to spend forever with you, and has the only way to everlasting life. But sadly, many Christians, when it comes to commitments that they make, they prioritize other ones, and allow other ones to stop them from making a commitment to a church where they can find all— the, and this is just the tip of the iceberg of the, the good things that come from being part of a church. And because many people are willing to commit to 
other things and say, you know, if it comes to church or this, I'm going to go with that one. Um, because of that, there has been a great decline in church attendance over the years. Some um, info from the Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership shows that um, every year, 1,000 new churches start and 4,000 close their doors. Every, million, two point, every year, 2.7 million church members fall into inactivity. In 1900, 27 churches, uh, there was 27 churches per 10,000 people, and in 2000, there was 11 churches per 2,000 people. And many people think that because of this, the American church is dying. Now, I love what Andy Stanley, who's a pastor at North Point Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, his response to this idea. He asked his congregation this, and I want to ask you the same question. Who decides if this is true or not? We do. You do. And I do. When we decide whether or not we are going to commit to being somewhere where we can gather with other people to encourage each other, to love each other, to worship God together, to grow together, to inspire each other, to learn together, to encourage each other. Every time we make a decision about where we spend that time, it determines whether or not the American church is dying. But I think we should also ask this question. Who determines whether or not the American church will thrive? We do. You do. And I do. When we decide where we are going to spend our time, what we are going to do with our lives. And so when we're deciding, when you're trying to figure out what's important, it's, in, it's important to think in this way. Looking at what we're doing now from the perspective of the future can help us determine if it's important. So when you're choosing, do I want to go to church? Do I want to be at church more than ever, anything else I could possibly do? Uh, during that time frame, during that, uh, whenever it is that you might go to church, or, you know, we have it here at 10 a.m. on Sundays, and, you know, meetings throughout the week, but maybe you're from a different church or something like that. Um, when you're trying to decide between committing to that time and committing to something else, it's important to ask questions like this. Ten years from now, which will matter more? That I was at church or I was at something else? from now, which will benefit my life more? Or how about 50 years from now? Which one will matter more? And it's important to remember as a Christian, Jesus promised everlasting life for those who would give them, who would ask for forgiveness and follow him. So we can even ask the question, which will matter more 50 million years from now? Listen, church and the band can come back up right now. Church is the only institution that will last forever. We are talking about eternity here. We're talking about people's souls here. What is more important than that? How can the stakes get any higher? If you consistently choose to put some, a, commitment, a different commitment is more important than commitment to God's body, being a part of that, and helping making it grow. You may one point, at one point, experience the truth of what author Stephen Covey wrote when he said, many people 
climb the ladder of success only to find, only to find it was leaning against the wrong wall. Don't succeed at the wrong thing. Succeed at what is important to Jesus' heart. Coming together, encouraging each other, learning together, growing together, serving each other, serving people outside these walls, reaching people who have so little and need help. Succeed at something so that at the end of your life, if Jesus asks you, what did you do with the life that you gave? You said, I spent it valuing what you value, caring about what you cared. Why? Because Jesus cared about us. He gave his life for us. He died on the cross for our sins so that we don't have to take the punishment for our sin anymore. We can spend forever with him. And today, uh, in the first um, Sunday of every month, we have a, a little thing we do where we um, remember this. And we, we do something um, specifically to remember it. We take communion, and this is, we receive communion. And this is where um, you, you got a little uh, thing that looks like this in it. Um, and in a moment, we are going to uh, eat this, I guess you could call it bread, this wafer inside of it, and, and drink some of this and remember what Jesus has done for that. Um, we're going to sing a song to just kind of put our focus on what Jesus has done for us, and then I'm going to come back out and lead us in receiving communion. So here's the banner.